Thank you very much. I like the, uh, oh my gosh. I like all the nice things you say about me. I wish you'd be talked a little longer. <laughs> Unfortunately, my wife don't believe all those things. Or fortunately, I'm very happy to be here. I, I wish to thank uh, the committee and Ivan for asking me to to be here. It's been uh, a wonderful weekend for me up until this time, and I know that uh, tomorrow I'm listening to my favorite speaker, Mildred. Speaking in AA, if not, uh, well, I didn't really believe that I could ever get up one day and in front of the people. Uh, when I arrived here in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was in a, I was in a mission in Syracuse, New York, and I have been living in the Skid Row for about seven years. And uh, I was in my late 20s, and I, I have never been married, and couldn't read and write, and I have never had a driving license, and never owned a car. And I felt uh, that there was no other people in AA were like me. And I was right. <laughs> <laughs> and I walked into the uh, central group in Syracuse, New York, and I imagine there are the people over there are the same people you find here. Uh, the man that I have met, my first day a member, was a lawyer who had been sober for 13 years, a well-to-do person. And uh, his job every Friday night was to stand at the door and greet every member who walked in there. And one night it was me. Now I had uh, I wasn't dressed too well because I have not been sober for too long, and I always had trouble with wine sores. Usually they lasted about two or three weeks. And as I know today, I have always been extremely sensitive when I'm in this condition. And uh, I never like to to have people see me the way I look. But this Indian fellow who came to see me, who invited me to come to AA, told me that you had coffee and donuts and they were free. And, and I needed something. So I came here, and when this man, seeing me coming in, he rushed over and he grabbed my hand with his two hands, and he says to me, am I glad to see you? And I don't think that I was glad to see him. <laughs> I sat down, and that was the first time I was introduced to coffee, which I never liked. My first speaker in AA was a lady judge. And that's the first time I've heard a judge said, if you are new, please try to identify. And you know, you have to picture me sitting there 
you know, I'd been away from my own reservation where I was born in Quebec since when I was 14. I spent four years in lumber camp in Maine washing dishes. Then when I was 18 years old, I joined the Canadian Infantry in Quebec City where I spent three years and a half washing more damn dishes. And when I was 21 years old, I took a drink, and I'd been in skits for seven years. And here I am sitting there in my first meeting, not dressed, fine stars, long hair, and I'm in a mission. In those days, you were supposed to pay 35 cents a night, and I was behind three weeks' rent. I, I, I had some financial problems. And I'm sitting there, cannot read and write, listening to Judge telling me, please try to identify. <laughs> Can you imagine me saying to myself, you know, I'm just like her? <laughs> you know, I didn't even understand. I never, you know, two years later, I memorized her talk, and I still didn't know what the hell she was talking about. <laughs> You know, she used to get up and she used to say that it's a mental obsession that precedes the first drink. And once you take a drink, now it's coupled with a physical compulsion. And I used to say, holy Christ. <laughs> Two years later, I wish if I had her disease. <laughs> uh, I thought it was high class. But can you imagine if someone had told me, John, when you stay sober three months, you'll be getting up and say a few words? Can you imagine if someone had told me that 20-some years later I would be invited to travel to Thunder Bear, Ontario? Standing up here, there's a few hundred people here, and I still cannot read and write. And I still don't talk with English. And nothing about my past that I brought here that I've told lies about for so many years has changed. <laughs> Can you imagine if someone had told me that one day I would be invited to come here for no other reason and tell the truth about myself <laughs> that I've told lies about for better than 30 years? I I wanted to speak in AA. After I was sober for three months, there were many times I was asked to speak. But I didn't want people to know that I was living in a mission and that, uh, because I knew that people didn't accept that. I didn't want anybody to know that uh, I had no education. So I used to spend a lot of time trying to memorize some big words. And I had a lot of trouble memorizing. I could memorize them, but I didn't know what in the hell they meant. <laughs> Until I met someone in AA, I thought he was educated beyond his intelligence, so I quit. <laughs> <laughs> But I remember John Tuey was in a skid row bum like I was. John, 
it was the type of a person when he sobered up, he wanted everybody, he wanted to help people. John died in the same cell that him and I shared many times in Jimmyville. John couldn't stay sober. But one night after we left the central group, John says to me, I'm chairing the meeting Thursday night. Would you speak for me? I said, sure. By this time, I'm sober almost two years. So I Wednesday, I went to Salvation Army, and I bought the best suit that you can find for $3. And I stayed up all night memorizing my talk. And I mean, I stayed up all night. I couldn't even go to work the next day. And I never forget sitting there waiting to be called, shaking. And all at once, John said, well, we had another speaker, but time has run out. And that was me. <laughs> uh, I never got up there. Last night, I was listening to our friend from Winnipeg, and you know, it is really a wonderful feeling to sit there and to be able to see yourself to another person who Grant and I are people from different walks of life, who is a man who is an educated and who is a lawyer and once he was a judge. And yet everything that he talked about is something that uh, I can identify. I think A.A. calls it uh, the spirit of being one people. It is a miraculous thing about the grace of God that you and I can come here and in time we can see each other as one people. And I remember the night when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous and when I was listening to this lady judge and I said to myself, I don't belong here. I look around. I see no Indians in that room. At least I didn't see anyone with feathers. <laughs> I felt very uncomfortable and after the meeting I was leaving. But this lawyer, who'd been watching me, I'm sure, stopped me and he put his arms around me and he says to me, I have some friends here and I want you to meet them. They told me that I should come back because they needed me. And I believed them simply because they were telling the truth. And oftentimes I said, what touched me in my first meeting, perhaps uh, something much greater than the words could have given me about the nature of my sickness. And I think if you are lost in life, and I was, the past is something that I've always told lies about. And when you are in a mission, your mind doesn't allow you to see that there is any life tomorrow. And when I left the mission, I didn't even care whether I should go to the left or to the right, because there was no meaning in either direction. You know, I couldn't think of a greater gift that you can be given 
than to be allowed to come to a meeting like this and to meet people who understand you, people who accept you, people who love you, people who want to help you. And oftentimes I look back in my own life because whoever planted my first meeting knew what he was doing because it's been better than 23 years ago and I'm still here. And yet, I didn't feel that I belonged here. But I found something that enough to allow me to come back. And someone asked me one night what I thought that helped me the most in AA. I said, I came back. Because in the early days, I didn't understand. I knew nothing about the program. I didn't understand the people. But you know the time. It's, uh, it's a great thing for us in AA. Even in time, I was able to understand this lady judge. I remember one night, but a couple of years later, I was at the meeting when she got up. And she always talked about waking up in wall-to-wall carpet. And she never remembered how she got there. Well, I woke up inside the walk for years and I never remember how the hell I got there. <laughs> she used to say that I would be so sick that I would crawl to a john. And when I arrived there, she said, I never used the john the way it was designed. She said I would stick my head in there like if I was looking for serial numbers. I do the same thing, I, except I crawl back to the dirty old building, and I puke my guts up. She said, right after I finished puking, I said to myself, I have to have a drink. Now, you, you must examine two people. One, a lady judge, her father is a judge. Her husband is a director in a general hospital. And she talks about living in this big house in a hill. But you have an Indian who lives in a sidewalk, who cannot read and write, face covered with wine sores, dirty, and people step over him all the time because they don't think it's very important. But these people, one morning, they both wake up, and neither one of them remember how they arrived. They both crawl, one into wall-to-wall carpet. And I'm here to tell you that crawling is crawling. <laughs> Whether you crawl in a $100,000 home, are a dirty old sidewalk. <laughs> and when she arrived, she puked her guts out. And there is nothing high class about puking. <laughs> you, you cannot honestly say mine tastes better than yours.
But I think the sickness, the sickness is that when her and I both finished puking, and I'm not going to talk about it anymore because I just hate. <laughs> we both say the same thing. We both say the same thing. I never forget, she said, I've been doing it for 16 years. And I said, Christ is sicker than I am. <laughs> but can you imagine in two years coming to this meeting? Now we know that this is not recovery. But two years coming to meetings, this is what happens to me. It has allowed me to see, to understand, and to believe something that I couldn't do when I first arrived here, simply because I needed an education that AA has to offer. And one of the reasons why I when I stand in front of a group, no matter where I go, usually what you see in your own eyes, strange faces. But always inside, in my own heart, I know I belong here. Because this is a home for me, away from home. From the very first time I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I felt something that I have never felt before. And I think the reason I came back is because I said the other night, people who put this program together did it just for me. My father, my father, is, I never knew him too well, but he drank. When he died, he had a half a gallon of jug under his bed. And five years later, we lost uh, eight members in our family. They all died with TB. I had twin brothers died in the same year. And when I was 13 years old, my mother was dying with TB. I remember asking my mother one morning, because I was sleeping with her, I asked her if I was going to die too. And, you know, I will never forget the look that my mother gave me. Probably kept me alive. She said, you're a very strong kid. And I'm so proud of you because you never cry. And, you know, it's been many years and my mother never knew I cried. And many times when I stand up, one day I find myself in Los Angeles, California. I stood up in front of 10,000 people in AA. And you know the top came to my mind? My mother said, you're different. <laughs> and I said to myself, here I am. I have no education. I don't talk with English. And I look around these people with big brains big job, big money. They're sitting there looking at me and I'm up here talking to them. <laughs> so there you are and here I am. <laughs> My mother died when I was 14. 
And I left home, my people, they always talked about lumber camp in Maine. I wanted to leave because I couldn't find a home. I think that my people felt that I too had TB. So I lived in this old empty house for one year with a dog that I called Brownie. I was thinking about that the other night. We had a stray dog in our area that my wife picks up everything. We <laughs> People and dogs. <laughs> Last week we had two stray people living with us. But she found a dog outside and the kids called him Brownie. And I was going to keep it, but by the time I came back, the dog officer took it. And I was thinking about sleeping between two mattresses with a dog that I called Brownie. Dreaming that uh, one day I would leave home. I will find me a nice home. I will have a big job. I will have a big car. And a nice girl. And a lot of nice clothes. Because I felt people who had these things don't feel the way I do inside. I've always felt that if you have these things that you'll be free inside and people will not treat you the way they treat me. And so when I was 14, I, I grabbed a freight. I walked 15 miles. I grabbed a freight. And sometimes later, I arrived in Patton, Maine. I walked into the office and I asked for the job. And the fellow said, you're too young. We can't hire people too young. He said that the camp is 26 miles in the woods. They need a dishwasher because Canadian... The Second World War taken all the younger people. So I walked the 26 miles in the woods and I met a fellow by the name of Bill Langster who was in charge. And he gave me a job washing dishes and I was with him for four years. And he used to bring me home. I have always enjoyed going to his home because there were, was a respectable family that treated you decent. And besides, he had three daughters. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that they liked me. Matter of fact, it was his family that told him when I was 18 that it wasn't healthy for me to be in lumber camp for so many years that I should join the younger people. So he talked to me one morning and he said, John, you should join the army. They will teach you over there about life. So I left the lumber camp and I went to Quebec City. Because someone told me that if I should join the American army, I would never be able to go home on a path. And what I wanted to do is join the army and go back to my home and show my people that I have grown up and now a soldier. And my boss said, who knows, John, you might win a medal or two. And I was hoping maybe I could do that without getting hurt. 
And I said the other night, I have never been uh, what you call a patriotic person. Even then, I knew that this country was ours before it was yours. <laughs> and I wasn't about ready to risk my life for anybody. What I didn't know is myself. The Canadian Army gave me a job washing dishes because I had no education. Now, one of the strange things about my life that I like to wash dishes in lumber camp, and I dislike it very much to wash dishes in the Kenyan army because of my own attitude towards it. I felt that anyone who washed dishes in the army wasn't as good as the next person, something I have never been able to live with. You see, I am what is known as a dependent person. Dependent person is one who looks for approval, one who seeks for acceptance. They say faith is the spirit of independence. One who walks with faith looks not for approval, looks not for acceptance, acts not on what he feels, but acts on what he believes. Father Martin says, Man is a rational man, and he must learn to live with his head, because that's the thing that separates all the living things. And you know, it took me years and years in AA with all the help that I can get to be able to find this insight that I am a slave to what other people think about me. You know, for years I told lies about myself, not because I felt that there was anything attractive or that you can find quality in lying, but I told lies because, simply because I wanted to belong in life. I felt that if I should tell people what they should know about me, then they would accept me. For human beings, that is slavery. But here I was. But you know, the thought came to my mind that I, I wasn't any different than these younger people. I couldn't see where they were smarter and I was stupid. And I asked the Indian Army to give me another test in case they made a mistake. About a year later, after I washed dishes, I asked them. They did, and the result was I was M4, which meant that I was not teachable. I looked back many times. Can you imagine a poor little boy like me without education stand up and saying, the Canadian Army is wrong? You know, I have to be sober 20-some years, own a 14-room house, two new cars, being a director in three reservations in the state of Maine, standing up and talk to thousands of people to be able to say to myself tonight, do you know that Canadian Army was wrong? <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
join everyone home. Because looking for approval is slavery. I never went home. I didn't want my people to make fun of me because I wear a uniform and washing dishes. And I know they would. I never went out with a girl. I was afraid that she'd find out. Not that I didn't know that I wasn't old enough to go out with a girl. <laughs> And you learn, you don't learn everything in school. <laughs> Someone said God moves in mysterious ways and wonders how he performs. Then I got my discharge and I took a drink. And the world changed and nobody understands better than you do. Do you know when I drank, if you didn't like me, boy, do you have problems. And I liked it. But I think what I, what I received from the first time I took a drink, probably what I wanted the most, and that is to be able to sit down and talk to these people, some that I don't even know, and feel very comfortable, something I never could do. When I drank, the thought never came to my mind that I had no education or that I didn't talk with English. And it didn't bother me that I washed dishes for three years and a half simply because I never tell the truth. When I drank, I was free. I went out with a girl the first night I got drunk and it was about time. <laughs> Somebody said, John, why do you drink? <laughs> It's magic. That's what it is when you drink, it's magic. It doesn't give you freedom from whatever it is that robs you. It just numbs it so you don't feel. But it does more than that. It gives you a new vision. I don't know about you, but I used to wake up in the morning and I look at my partner. I said to her, What's the matter with you? You were so cute last night. <laughs> I mean, I actually see the stars in her eyes. This morning, which is two stones. I was 21 years old. Can you imagine? Here I was in Montreal, Blurry Cafe. Just bought a new suit. $200 in my pocket. And I took a drink. And I did right away what my boss said. Join the under people. And I have heard it described in AA by so many alcoholics. But no matter how they described it, I always identified it. Can you imagine if someone came to me that night and said, John, you continue on drinking. That one day you will sleep in a sidewalk. And the reason I never drank for 21 years, I didn't want to be like my father. I remember one time my father sang in a church. 
and he always drank. And his face would be sweating, and he would hold the rail, and you could, and he would sing, and that little church would shook because he had a voice. But one day he was so drunk that two Indians marched him out. And I went outside with him. They let him go and he fell into grass and tried to get up. And you know he couldn't. And that's one reason why I never wanted to be my father. Can you imagine if someone had told me that I would pass him, that I would be laying in the sidewalk and people would step over me. I would have never believed it because I have found a friend. It makes me feel the way I have always wanted to feel and do what I have always wanted to do. If I didn't like you, I'll punch you right in the mouth. And I always want to do that. But when I was sober, I never could do it because I had this feeling that you might punch back. (laughs) I think when our co-founders choose words like it's cunning, it's baffling, and it's powerful. I look back tonight because of uh, an education that I have been given here. And I can see that I couldn't see then about me and a drink. Tonight I know that while on one hand that booze gave me this freedom that I have just told you about, on the other hand it started to rob me right away because I have never been a social drinker. I became just as much as alcoholic that night as I will ever be. I was powerless. And like so many of us, I didn't get drunk because I was young and I was strong. But you know, alcoholism, it's progression. The question for us, it's time. And two years later, I arrived in Skid Row and stayed there for the next seven years. Until the night I was invited to come to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know that I was an alcoholic. I didn't know that I was powerless over alcohol. I didn't know that alcoholism could kill you. All I knew that I felt that I was different. But I came back. And this is where my life started to change. I came back to meetings and I met my sponsor in AA. And I said the other night that my sponsor is a man that I have never liked. He was a bum like myself, but but he had a degree. I've always said there is nothing worse than a drunk who has a degree. My Pat and I, we used to wound up in Salvation Army. And Major Harvey would give him a job working in the office. And Major Harvey would give me a job working on a truck for a dollar a week. And he had an office right where I would walk into this building. And he had a big window. And he would be sitting there all dressed up. You know, the 
you know, the guy, he, he's wearing a suit, some poor bastard probably died in cirrhosis of liver. <laughs> and and he, he's sitting there all dressed up, you know, he hasn't spent a penny on it. He's looking down on me. And you know, I can't stand that. I used to say to myself, wait till we get drunk the next time, I'm going to kill the bastard. <laughs> and he, he used to tell the bums, never drink that with that Indian, he hits you for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Little did he know. I would store all this up. I had a little room in the back where I put everything in there. And when I get feeling good, I open it. And I used to stand, stand next to him, and I used to say to myself, isn't it nice he doesn't know I'm going to hit him pretty soon? <laughs> <laughs> but he disappeared. He joined A.A. And I was in Central Group one night, and Pat walks in, all dressed up, with a girl. He walks right over, and he says to me, John, I'm your sponsor. Then he says, I have a brand new car outside. I will bring you home. And that's what he did. Pat uh, was sober for many years, I think 17 years. And he took a drink, and he died in the same street that, well, I don't know why he drank. But he used to pick me up every night, and uh, he used to bring me a half a sandwich. He used to say to me that uh, he can only eat half of it. And much later in my sobriety, uh, I've learned that Pat never eats sandwiches. And he used to pick up these guys, like me, and he would stop his car and he would send the guy in there to get a sandwich. And he would give me half of it because he used to tell him, if he find out that we're feeding this guy, he wouldn't come with us. But the bastard would bring me the next half the next night. <laughs> and about six months later, he stopped the car in the mission, and he says to me one night, John, you have to leave this place. You can't stay sober in AA and live with these people. But I didn't want to leave. I, I've always felt secure in a mission. And I felt that I could stay sober and live in a mission. But I guess God was on his side because one night mission burned down. And three o'clock in the morning, I went to see Pat, and I said to him, mission, mission just burned down. He said, that's the grace of God. <laughs> Sleep on the floor. So the next day, he brought me to the 12-step house in Syracuse, and they gave me a job. They paid me $7 and a half a week and a free bed. And my job was to wash and wax floors, make coffee, answer the telephone call, and wash dishes. <laughs> and in my recovery, not only did I have learned to live like a white man dollar down and dollar a week, 
but I bought me a dishwasher. <laughs> and I remember when a guy finished stalling it and my daughter filled it up and I said to her, let me push the first button. <laughs> the thing just hums and I said, hum, you cheap bastard. <laughs> But I get thrown out from the 12-step house because I get into trouble. People play cards there every night, and one night I received a call from this girl by the name of Anne. She wanted help. When they find out who she was, they told me that she's been around for years in AA, and all she does is use people in AA. And of course, I knew that was wrong. But my problem was, in those days, what do I do when I'm right? I never knew how. I've always acted the way I felt, not what I believed. So I did what I always do when you hurt my feelings. I upset the table. And I punched one of them right in his mouth. Knocked him down right on his ass. And that was my first 12 step call. And guess who to throw out? You know, it's amazing when you look back. You know, if you try to convince me that night that I was walking back port in Fayette Street, because I didn't know how to live. That's the thing about the sickness, you see. I would tell you it's not my fault. I'm right. There's so many people today go to divorce court and both of them are right. And here I was walking in the streets three o'clock in the morning, no money, and I had this feeling inside that it was not, it was unjust. All they want to do is play cards. They don't care for nobody. And here I was. But you know, somebody was good enough to call my sponsor and he picks me up and he brought me to his home. And next day he brought me to Salvation Army and Major Harvey gave my old job back for a dollar a week. And I worked there for a year and a half. And I started to travel. When I was sober five years, I was still living in Skid Row. I was past 30 years old by this time. The only thing different was, I, I, I had a world directory with me that was very old. And I went to meetings every night, no matter where I was. I always went to meetings. I would sleep in an empty car, couldn't tell anybody in AA how I felt inside. Grant was talking about loneliness last night. Because you see, I felt that I was different. I felt that the people knew. You see, I felt that in my 50 year sobriety, I shouldn't be sleeping in empty cars. I shouldn't be living in a skid row. And people in AA will say, John, you're doing something wrong. 
that you're not practicing the program. But I'm here to tell you, I'm here tonight because whatever happened to me, I stayed sober. And if I have to, and the only way I could be where I am now is go through everything that I did. All these years I have been sober. Because that's what brought me here. And I like where I am. I said the other night, if anybody should give me a power to choose what I wish to be for the first 30 years in my life, I would have never chosen to be John the Indian. In my 30 years, I have dreamed that I have been many things in my life. I always dreamed that I was a very important person, always rich. People always looked up to me. I never in 30 years once considered being myself. And I said the other night, I used to love John Wayne. I never liked the way he killed Indians. <laughs> but I always admired a man who never looked for approval. That's what I've always liked about John Wayne. You know, there is a great strength, great quality, great respect for a man who acts on what he believes in. But you know, the reason that I guess I have never once considered to be myself, I never once believed that these qualities reserved to all human beings. I thought you have to be rich, strong, and well-educated like John Wayne. I never once considered that I could have those qualities, that I can earn those things. And they were here in AA, and I had all the help that I needed. It takes a long time for people like me in the program. I was hitchhiking. And you know, someone talked about feelings last night and someone talked about loneliness. And I'm so grateful that I'm not lonely anymore. And it's been years and years since I ever lay down and wished if I was somebody else. What I do these days when I lay down at night, I thank God for everything that I have. And I even pray for many of my friends. And I like it that way. When I was 34 years old, I arrived in Marlboro, Mass, 1 o'clock in the morning. I didn't know the name of the town. I was broke. I was better than five years sober. And I went in a hotel, I went to men's room, and I lay down, and it's where I stayed. And from here on, my story is changed. In Marlboro, I met a man in AA who owned a restaurant. And I used to go over and see him. 
And one morning, a waitress asked me if I knew of any contractor in town that could remodel and paint her house. I said, I did. Me. She said, I didn't know you were a contractor. I said, I didn't either. <laughs> so I went over and I gave her an estimate, and I gave her an estimate of $300, and I got a job. And I find out later that other contractors wanted twelve to $1,400. I said to Paul, I have a job, but I don't have the money to start. He says, why don't you go back and ask Rita? She might give you enough money. So I went over and she gave me $100, and here I was. I had no car. I had no room. But I had $100. So I went out and I bought coveralls. First thing I did, I bought coveralls. I felt that if you're going to be a president in your own company, you might as well buy a coverall. And I bought some paint and scrapers and hammer, and I carried everything to the job. And I met a guy who worked in a telephone company in AA, and he loaned me a ladder. He even delivered it. And here I was. And thank God for Paul who owned a restaurant. I didn't starve. I think I owed him something like 40 to $60. But I met a person in AA who owned a ranch house, he said, in Sudbury, Mass., which is seven miles from where I live. And he said, John, all you need is a 10-foot stepladder. So I borrowed that. And I got all my trough plots together and my white coveralls and my paint and I stood in the corner and I stopped the bus. <laughs> this fellow stopped, he looks at my ladder. <laughs> then he looks at me and he says, you can't be serious. <laughs> and I said, I am. I'm self-employed and I have no other means of getting to work. You know, some people, you know, don't, they don't have to be drink to go crazy. <laughs> he looks at me and he says, if I give you a ride, would you promise you'll never do it again? <laughs> <laughs> My next house was a school teacher. She taught school for 40 years and she retired. I said to her, you think you could teach me how to read and write? She said, I have taught thousands of people how to read and write. And I used to go and see her every night, and she helped me to memorize the 69 questions to get my driving license. And I remember I took the tests and I passed. I went over to see her. She says to me, John, would you consider coming back and continue on your education? I said, no, because you see, she told me that I had an excellent mind, but now it comes to question of believing, totally the opposite of looking for acceptance and looking for approval. The book says, the key that opens the door to a program of recovery, it is willingness to believe. 
somewhere she tells us one has to let go and let God. For in order to believe, you must become teachable. Here I am, I'm in my 35 years old. I knew that this lady liked me. She really did. And I felt that because she likes me, she's feeling sorry for me. She's trying to tell me that I have an excellent mind. But down deep inside, she knows it's not true. Because I know that the Canadian Army said I wasn't teachable. I know the judge said that the park in Syracuse, that's what for a decent people. Wasn't for people like me. Besides, not too long ago, I slept in a men's room in a hotel. She doesn't know that. She doesn't know that I steal donuts in the meetings when everybody leaves. Besides, here I am, 30-some years old, and I don't have a car. I'm not married. See, the thing was, I couldn't let go to believe. I couldn't let go of myself. My sickness is that, and has always been, from the time I slept between two mattresses with little dog that I called Brownie was, I've always wanted to be somebody. I always pretend to be that in life in which I was not. I was obsessed to myself. To believe is to let go of yourself. Because it suggests that you learn to trust. You learn to accept. You learn to do what you are asked to do. And I didn't believe her. And I look back tonight and I said to myself, it only meant for me that I needed more time in AA. I needed to come back. Because it was the question of time. The day came, you know, that things changed. But I couldn't believe. You know, she died a few years later. And I have never had a chance to go back and tell her. I remember once when I was hired by the government to be a director in three reservations in the state of Maine. And here I was, I took off my dirty old coveralls and I bought a suit, <laughs> and I even bought a tie to match, and I signed my shoes. I received a call. They wanted to know what color I wanted in the wall-to-wall -wall carpet in my office. <laughs> I told them, use your own judgment. And I remember the day that I walked into my office. All dressed up. I was greeted by the psychiatrist, Dr. Collins, who, owned, who had Avis next to me. And I met the social worker upstairs in his Indian education. And here I am, a director in the program. 
While I was there, I received a call from the University of Maine. They wanted an Indian speaker in the adult education program. The lady says, we pay $40 an hour. Would you be interested? I said, I would. I went over there and I spoke for one hour and I was so impressed with what I said, I gave them half an hour free. <laughs> but you know, in that 44 miles wood from the University of Maine to my office, and I remember these things, I was thinking about the school teacher. We stood at the door one night, the door was open, and she wouldn't let me go. She was holding my two hands. I suppose it's a terrible thing to, when you, when, when you know something and that person don't believe you. She said, John, you must believe me. And I didn't believe her. Simply because I couldn't let go. By this time, she was dead. And I used to say to myself, you know, nothing would please me more than to go back and to tell her, I'm now a director. <laughs> I have an office. I even have a secretary she built like a brick house. But maybe in a very strange way, she found out that that's what I was doing. But here I was, I had my driving license in my 50 years sobriety, and Paul, who owned the restaurant, came to see me where I was working, and he brought 11 passenger station wagon. John, he said, you can buy this car for $700. And I didn't have a seven cents. So I went upstairs and I asked the lady, if she could give me enough money for the down payment, and I did. And here I was, not only that I was president in my own company, I had a driving license and I had a car. And then I said to myself, I think I'll find me a girlfriend. But I had these four teeth in front missing, and that's the only thing I lost in drinking, and I felt you couldn't find a decent girl with teeth missing. And I met a dentist in AA, and I've been watching them for about three weeks. Because you see, my problem is I don't like anyone to hurt me. I'm very sensitive and I don't suffer well. I cornered him one night and I said to him, I have a little problem and I'm wondering if you could help me. He said, what's the problem? I said, I'm looking for a girlfriend. And I have these four teeth in front missing, and I was wondering if you could help me. <laughs> you know, in, in Syracuse, New York, I used to hang around in the slave market. The slave market, for those of you who don't know, is a state employment office where you can get a job, work for two or three hours, and get paid the same day. It was important when you lived the way I do. I got a job one time unloading a boxcar. I finish on Saturday afternoon and I start drinking. Also in Syracuse, New York, there is a barroom they call Smithis. Smithis is where all the New York Indians drink. I'm a Mi'kmaq Indian. 
Micmacs and New York Indians never communicate too well. And every once in a while, 20 of us Micmacs would go, go to Smittish, and we would communicate. But I was feeling good, and I wear a long leather glove that I just finished using, unloading a boxcar. And I'm walking by, and someone opened the door and threw this guy out. And that's where I met Smiley. Smiley is a little Irishman with a degree who weighs about 90 pounds. I pick him up, and I said to him, what in the hell is wrong with you? He said, it's those Indians inside. I said to Smiley, they can't do that to you. He says, no, they can't. I said, what do you say you and I go in there and clean them up? <laughs> Smiley said, it's a good idea. <laughs> well, by the Jesus, it wasn't a good idea. <laughs> I wake up in a general hospital, I lost four teeth, and Smiley said in there without a scratch. It never dawned on me there was anything wrong. And the years went by, and Smiley and I would wake up in jail, and I would be all messed up and be sitting there without a scratch. Finally, it dawned on me one day and one morning, and I said to Smiley, how come that I can get so messed up and you never had a scratch? You know, he gave me that the most sincere look he has, you know. That's why he's such a good bum. He looks at me, he said, John, don't you know, he said, I'm a college man. <laughs> Smiley never fight. So that's where I was. I lost 14. This guy gave me his card and he says, talk to my secretary. I did. I went over to see him and he opened my mouth and he wanted to pull 14 teeth. And I said to myself, I shouldn't have come here. And then he says, we have to fill the rest of them before I can give you the false teeth. I said to him, how long that's going to take? Well, he said, if you keep your appointments, we can do it in three months. And I said, holy Christ. <laughs> but I never forget the day I went, and I still got my teeth. I was so happy, I rushed home, I ran upstairs, I looked in the mirror, and I laughed for two hours. <laughs> I met a lady in AA, she said, uh, I'm told that you have a new car. I said, 11 passengers. <laughs> she said, I, I run the faith house, home of an alcoholic woman. I have nine girls and I'm looking for someone to take this girl to a meeting every Thursday night. Would you like the job? I said, I'll be very happy to. And that's where I met my wife, Kathy. Brought this girl to a meeting that night, and on my way back, I said to her, Would you like to go out on a date? She said, No. <laughs> and you know, it's hard for me to accept anything like that. Because <laughs> I don't suffer well. But on my way home, hey, it was working for me. Because I said to myself, Who in the hell she thinks she is? Here she is living in the faith house, she's got nothing. And here I am, I'm president in my own company. 
I own my own car and new set of teeth, who the hell wants her anyway? <laughs> so next Thursday night, I picked the girls again, and on our way back, I said to her, how about a show in Boston Sunday? She said, okay. And so we went to show in Boston, and on our way back, I asked her to marry me. <laughs> she said, but I don't know you. And I said, that's all right. We still have five miles to go. We'll get it coming. <laughs> so we got married. <laughs> and you know, you should hear this psychiatrist in AA. That poor Indian, he was doing so well. <laughs> now he's marrying a girl who lives in the paint house. It's too bad, they said. But you know, my, my, my wife's family, they don't like alcoholics. They used to wear that round hat with feathers sticking out. They didn't like Kathy being an alcoholic, and especially when they find out that she married an Indian without feathers. <laughs> Oftentimes I said, now that we live in a 14-room house and two cars, we can't get rid of the bastards. <laughs> but we had $85, Kathy and I. We stopped the car, we got married. <laughs> we count our change. I said to her, where would you like to go? You name it, we got $85. We went back home. I've been away for 21 years. And that was a mistake. Again, simply because I knew nothing about myself. My mother used to write notes to an Indian agent. You know, my family would cry. They were hungry. It was 14 miles. And used to wrap them in my hand so I wouldn't lose the note. So in five years that uh, I made many trips. Summer and winter. And if I wasn't going to an Indian agent, I was in the woods cutting wood with my little dog that I call Brownie. And when my twin brothers would cry, my mother used to say, it's all right. Tomorrow, we'll send John to an agent and we'll find food. But there was no food. When I was 13 years old, my mother was dying and she's been in bed for a long time. She couldn't get up. She wanted a jar of Vaseline. She wanted to know if I could go and see an agent. I said, sure. So I walked 14 miles with the note and I gave it to him in one time. He looks at it and gave me a nice smile, throw it on the snow and shut the door in my face. And that's what came to my mind when I went home. 
what I really wanted to do. I felt that it was unfair to abuse any man when he's not strong enough to defend himself. And that to me is justifiable, I felt. I used to wonder when people talk about 11 steps, a prayer of St. Francis. St. Francis said, Lord, let me be the instrument of thy will, for where there is hate, I will bring love. Where there is sadness, I will bring joy. Where there is darkness, I will bring light. Where there is doubt, I will bring faith. And then he says, Lord, I pray that I may understand rather than to be understood. And then he says, Lord, I pray that I may love rather than to be loved. And I said, it's unfair. It's unfair to ask me to understand and to love someone who abused me when I wasn't strong enough to challenge. And for years I felt this way until one night there is magic of coming to meetings and there is nothing that can replace it. Simply because I believe that AA unfolds the way God wants it. One night I was at the meeting and I heard the words that I have never heard. In those discussion meetings, St. Francis said, Lord, let me be the instrument. He wanted to be an instrument. A thought came to my mind. There is a question that I must learn to love God more than I hate. And if I'm going to follow the program, then I'm asking, then I'm being asked to do what AA said, Thy will and not mine be done. The book says that hate is a tool of self-destruction, whether it is justifiable or not, it kills the person inside. And one cannot hate on one hand and say, Thy will be done on the other. And I decided that I love A.A. more than I hate that man. And Kathy and I left, left very quickly, and I had 11 passenger station wagon driving 75, 80, and 85 miles an hour, risking a life to the only person in the world who loves me, which is my wife, because I was totally insane. But I arrived back to Marlboro and we had $35 left. So we got a three-room apartment and we moved in there and Kathy and I had absolutely nothing except the coffee table that was given to us from a faith house. And even newlyweds cannot sleep in coffee tables. <laughs> so I said to Kathy, you pick any corner in this house and that's where we sleep. We slept on the floor. But you can have a lot of fun on the floor too. <laughs> I don't want to discourage you. Not that I'm, not that I'm too know. I spoke one time in New York State and I mentioned the fact you can have a lot of fun on the floor and after the meeting this rich lady came to me and she said, young man, she said, I don't know how much fun you can have on the floor, she said, but I know you can have a lot of fun on the Oriental Rock. 
so I said, but at least you identify. <laughs> so while we're laying on the floor, I said to Kathy, you know, I would like to have a boy, because I'm the only one left. I said to her, if you give me a boy, I'll buy you a diamond. You know, you know, when you look back, it's funny. I cannot afford a bed, <laughs> but I'm promising a diamond, and and the beautiful thing was that my wife was sick enough, so she believed me. <laughs> so this Christmas, she's in a hospital waiting for a boy, and I walk into a bank, first time in my life, wanting $200, and they said that I didn't have collateral. And you know, I never knew what that meant. Nobody in AA talks about collateral. I went to three banks and they wouldn't give me money because I didn't have collateral and I went to see my friend Paul who owned the restaurant and I told him. He said, John, what you want to do is pray. I said, Christ, Paul, they don't need God, they need collateral. <laughs> Whatever the hell that is. And I went to Hudson, seven miles, and I met the gentleman who was retired that year president in the bank, and I told him the story. He said, we don't lend money with sad story. But he says, I've always prided myself when I see an honest face. <laughs> and you know, he said, how much money do you want it anyway? And he sounded so good. I said, $400. <laughs> He gave me the money with a little speech that if I pay my bills on time, I can always borrow money from that bank. So I rushed back to Marlboro and I went to Alan Jewelers' store and I said to him, show me the best diamond that you have. He did. I said to him, show me the cheapest one that you have. <laughs> he said, you can have this one for $150. I said, I'll take it. He said, you want to charge it, of course. I said, of course. <laughs> and I brought it to my wife, and I went home, and I waited. And three o'clock in the morning, I received a call, and my wife climbed. She said, honey, it's a girl. I said, you can't be serious. I've already bought some feathers for the boy. But she was. Next Christmas came along and my wife was in the hospital again. And I received the call and she's still crying. She said, honey, it's a girl. But you know, by this time, they said the experience is a great teacher. I went over to see her and I said to her, because I knew she loved me and she wanted to give me a boy. I said to her, honey, don't worry about it, just have an open mind and we'll try again. <laughs> I learned that in the program. So next Christmas came along, and my wife is in there again, and I received the call and she's still crying. This time it's twin boys. So I got scared. I rushed over and I said to her, what do you say that next Christmas? 
we hang our stockings and wait for Santa Claus. So two years later, the boy came along, and another couple of years later, another girl came along. So Kathy and I have six children. In closing, as individuals, we all have in our own lives things that we're grateful for for AA, but all of us are grateful. I am, for instance, grateful that I hear my twin boys fighting every morning with cereal they're going to have. I remember my twin brothers who cried all night because of food. I'm a proud man, maybe too much. I like things in life. I like people to respect me. And I've earned it. I have learned this in the program. Where I live, my wife never once has been ashamed because she has my name. I like that. My kids never been hungry. They never been dirty. They have never once bummed a nickel. I said to my twin boy, who is 14, he, uh, he's one of those intellectuals, he wins the spelling bee contest, and <laughs> I said to him one day, you know, you're lucky, you've never been hungry. He said, father, I'm not supposed to. <laughs> I got another daughter who, who sings in school. She came over the other night all crying and said, Daddy, can you imagine? He said, I'm the first one in the family that I will receive a standing ovation. I said, Honey, you're the second one. <laughs> I got Patricia, 70, 17 years old. She built like a brick house. She wears tight sweaters and combs her hair, and I told her the other night I think she's horny. <laughs> But I have a happy family. <laughs> Probably one of the biggest things that I have been given in the program for me in closing is to just say what I have said. It's a big problem in, in this world of ours to, to sit down together and feel equal. That is the law of God. God didn't make us to mistrust each other because we come from different walks of life. I listened to a minister the other night and he says, the miracle of 20th century is Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, you see a person comes in so sick, lost everything, and he comes into an AA meeting that you really don't understand what's going on, but you see that person gets well. And you know, I identify with that because I didn't understand what's going on. 
And yet I came back, and little by little, I have gotten well. When I was in Maine, I received a call from Channel 4 in Boston. They wanted to know if I had a news for them. I said I did. They came over and they interviewed me in my office for one hour. They made a special and they showed in Boston. And Steve Shaw won Award of the Year on the special that I passed. University of Maine bought the special and they showed it on television. The lady, her name was Sanya Hamlin, who has an hour show in Boston, called me up in Maine and she said, we are celebrating your special on my show. If I pay your expenses, would you come? I said, I would, even if you didn't pay my expenses. <laughs> I arrived in the airport and they sent this big car that, I, that had about 10 seats to pick me up all by myself. And our way back, I said to this guy, I will never understand the white man. <laughs> when I was in Maine, I had to appear eight members in the Governor Curtis Council, and I fought for half a day to pass the bill. I was the only I was the only Indian that was examined and questioned by Civil Rights Commission that Nixon sent for four hours. Before I left to do that, psychiatrist Dr. Collins says, remember John, in this life you act on what you believe in and never react on what you feel. Long time ago, there was non-alcoholic. A lady who taught school for 40 years told me, John, you have a great mind. I didn't believe it. And thank God that I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous to have people like you come back to, to teach me that I am not a stupid person. I have never been a stupid person. But I have always been very sick. And I am an alcoholic. And tonight, I am grateful to God and to AA and certainly for people like you. Thank you very much. <laughs>